All right, that's it. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5, if you're using one of our red Story Church Bibles, is on page 472. 472. Well, Christmas is past, and uh, perhaps you opened up a wonderful gift this year. I remember as a kid, one of my favorite gifts that I ever opened was the Nintendo 64. I was filled with joy. Um, I'm sure if, if there were phones back then, my parents would have recorded it, my excitement, and would have gone viral. Um, I was truly happy. Maybe if you've got kids, you saw that happiness on their faces as they opened up gifts. Uh, but if you did see that happiness, you probably also saw, within the last four weeks, uh, boredom or disappointment maybe, that happiness that we saw so purely on Christmas morning, it doesn't last, and that's okay, that's, that's inevitable. Uh, happiness, it doesn't last, especially when we find our happiness in things, in possessions, in gifts, or in wealth, or beauty. There's a whole number of things in this world that do bring us happiness, uh, both tangible and intangible things, but it's fleeting. True happiness, true joy is hard to come by in this world. We fight for it. We work hard for it. We long for it. But do we ever have it? Are we ever truly happy? Jesus, at this point in his life and ministry, he has begun teaching from city to city He's called together a group of followers called disciples that he's called to be with him and to learn from him. And as he's gone from city to city, the crowds have heard about Jesus. They're following him. They're coming out to him to listen to him, to be healed by him, to learn from him. And in Matthew 5, Jesus says, pulled away from the crowds briefly, he's gone up to the side of a mountain and he's brought his disciples to him and he sat down and began to preach. This famous passage, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to teach his disciples. He's going to teach us what he wants, to, wants us to know. And he begins with this list of blessings. It's a list of how to be happy. How to have true happiness, how to be truly blessed in this life. In these 10 verses, there are eight characteristics of the, the man or the woman who has a blessed life, because these are descriptions of the person who has received the kingdom of God. They have entered into a new world a new way of living, a new experience. These are people who have been born again. They have been given a new life, a fresh start. They've been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. These people look different than the world. They act different than the world. Their priorities are different than the world's priorities. How they view themselves, how they view others are different than the world. What they think is wrong with the world and what the solution to that problem is different than the world's. Their happiness is different too. Their joy, it transcends circumstances. It remains when all else falls away. Oh, that we would be men and women 
defined by these characteristics, so differentiated in the world, living lives as citizens of the kingdom of God. If we were to live as Christians like this, following the Sermon on the Mount, Christians defined by these terms, I wonder just how much Story Church would grow. How our relationships with our neighbors and our friends and our families would grow. You see, we are called to live differently than the world. And that difference is attractive. Just take, for example, the sense of happiness that transcends circumstances. How attractive would it be for our friends to see our lives rooted and anchored in a hope, a joy that remains when all other things pass away, when health passes away, when our careers pass away, when uh, our careers, our wealth, our health, all of it pass away, when all else is taken away from us, the Christian is rooted in the kingdom of God and says, it is well with my soul. How attractive would our lives be to those around us if we lived like this? Friends, as we set out in 2023 together, as you and your family set goals for your life, as you strive to make this year better than the last, would you consider what Jesus has to teach us today and for the next several weeks from the Sermon on the Mount? We're going to be here for about 12 weeks. True blessing doesn't come from financial stability. It doesn't come from achieving a career goal. It doesn't come from dieting and exercise. Those things are all fine in and of themselves, sure, but they are each They can only bring momentary or temporary joy. But on the other hand, Jesus says in this sermon, he says there is true happiness available. There is true blessedness. In this teaching, we find the key to a truly blessed life. We're going to look at the first four of these characteristics this morning. And we're going to see that Jesus is teaching us that we want to have a blessed life. We have to adopt this posture. And if you're following on the bulletin or want to take notes, there are three postures that we find in these first four characteristics. That we have to take a posture of poverty of spirit, a posture of mourning our sin, and a posture of meekness toward God. Poverty of spirit, mourning of our sin, and meekness toward God. Let's read the first few verses, chapter 5, and pray, and we'll get into it. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray now as we look at it, would you speak to us? Would you open up our hearts to hear what you have to say? Would you convict us, spirit, of the ways we do not live up to your standard? And would you give us the grace to come to you asking for help? Spirit, we pray for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. First, we are to have a posture of poverty in spirit. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have to be really careful here. Jesus is building an argument. He's building a case. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We need to be careful that we don't read into this something that he's not saying. He's not saying here, blessed are the poor. Elsewhere, he does say that. He's making another argument elsewhere. But here, he is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. That there is something inside one's spirit, inside one's being. Jesus says, you, in your inner self, need to take a posture of poverty. This is counterintuitive to the world. This is not how the world operates. To take a posture of poverty in our inner self is to reject pride. It is to reject a sense of self-sufficiency. It is to reject the idea that I can do it on my own. It is to say, I am unable. I am poor in my spirit. It is to come to the conclusion that there are problems that we face in this world, tangible and intangible, material and spiritual, to which we need to come to the conclusion and say, this problem lays beyond my ability to overcome. This issue is beyond my strength to fix. This mountain is too tall for me to climb. Like I said, this goes against the world. Christians are to be different than the world. It goes against every bit of teaching and upbringing that most of us in this room received as a child and well into our adult lives. We have heard time and time and time again that self-sufficiency, self-reliance, self-confidence, that is what is necessary for you to amount to anything in this life. If you want to achieve anything, you have to believe in yourself. You may have heard me use this illustration before, but I call this, uh, at least in part jokingly, the Disneyification of the world. The Disneyification 
of the world. Have you seen the movie Moana? It's a great story about a princess on an island who dreams of great things. She dreams that one day she'll be this great leader, that one day she's going to cross the waters and lead her people. And yet her family cautions her, says, Moana, quiet that voice in your head. Don't go after that. Her community says, Moana, we need you here. We need you here and now. She rebels against it time and time again. And then at the beginning of the whole story, her grandma, sweet Tala, sings this song to her. Maybe you know it. She says, she teaches her, she reminds her, even if your whole community, even if your whole family is telling you to find contentment and happiness right here on the island, if, if everyone's saying, get out of your head and out of your dreams for bigger and better, she says this, if that voice starts to whisper, to follow the farthest star, remember, Moana, that voice inside you, that is who you are. Follow it. Did you catch that message? You can do it. It's who you are. It's what you're meant to be. You have the skills within you. You have the strength. You have the confidence. Ignore what your family says, even though they love you. Ignore what your community says, even though they support you. Ignore those voices. The only voice that matters is the one inside your own head. And it says, you can do it. You can climb any mountain. You can cross any sea. You can tackle any obstacle that might come your way. I was driving down the road yesterday, and I saw a novelty license plate that said, Rise above. It's all around us. This message that you can do it. And it's not new. 70 years before Moana came out, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, this is the whole principle upon which life is run at the present time. Express yourself. Believe in yourself. Realize the powers innate in yourself. Let the whole world see and know them. Jesus says, you can't have that attitude. You have to be poor in your spirit. You have to come to the conclusion that there are things in your life that you cannot overcome. There are obstacles that you face that you do not have the strength to win. Not just in our relationship with God, in every sphere of our lives, we are to be men and women who adopt the posture of poverty in spirit. Whatever the task is that lies before us, parenting, friends, we cannot on our own do what God has called us to do as parents. We do not have the patience enough for it. We do not have the strength enough for it. We do not have the wisdom enough for it. Brothers and sisters who work, you do not have innate in you everything you need to do what God has called you to do in your place of work. You don't have the patience enough to work with your coworkers. 
You don't have the humility enough to take criticism. You don't have the self-awareness enough, the identity rooted in God's love to follow someone else's leadership. Jesus says, if you want to receive the kingdom of God, you must adopt a posture of poverty in your spirit. No one else can receive the kingdom of God. That's step number one. That's the first posture. What's the second? In verse four, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And again, he's talking spiritual here, not material. He's he's not saying happy are those who have experienced death in the family. He's not saying that. He is saying that blessed are those who mourn in their inner self, who mourn over their sin. This is a move from not only saying that there are issues in the world that I'm unable to overcome, It's a movement that says, now I recognize that the root cause of my inability to overcome those issues is that I am a sinner. Back in 1908, the Times in the UK newspaper, it sent out an inquiry to many of the world's most famous authors and, and thinkers and publishers asking them that they would contribute an essay to a publication they were putting out. They were looking for these thinkers, these leaders of thought, to answer the question, what is wrong with the world today? And one writer, one author, one philosopher and Christian apologist, G.K. Chesterton, simply replied back, Dear sirs, regarding your article, What is Wrong with the World, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterlin. This simple response is how we move from poverty of spirit to mourning our sin. We admit that we are incapable within ourselves to amount to the life we have been called to because we own up the reality that the root cause is within ourselves. We are sinners. We wrestle and struggle with accepting this, don't we? We have learned really well in the church to ignore this. We have learned, tongue-in-cheek in a post-COVID world, to wear a mask. We have learned to pretend to be someone we're not. We project ourselves and to one another as if we were okay. We give off the impression that our lives are good and fine. We learn answers to the question, hey, how are you doing? No, really, how are you doing? We layer and layer and layer spiritual goods upon our lives. We convince ourselves 
and others that we're okay. We keep a personal attendance sheet of how much we've been to church. We, we look at how much we give to charities. We do really well at giving off the appearance of piety, totally covering up what's really under the surface. Growing up, I love to watch the movie Monty Python and the Quest for the Holy Grail. Perhaps you've seen it as well. There's an iconic scene in which King Arthur is battling against the Black Knight. And they've got their swords drawn, and they're going at it. And and King Arthur uh, takes his sword and, and slices off the Black Knight's arm. And he says, there, I've won. And the Black Knight says, no, tis but a scratch. And King Arthur says, no, your arm's gone. The Black Knight responds, oh, it's just a little flesh wound. How often do we ignore what's really wrong and say, oh, it is nothing. I'm all right. I'm okay. We laugh at the absurdity of that scene, but it reveals our tendency to try to cover up the reality of the situation. It would be like going to the doctor because you know that something's wrong with your body, but when the doctor says, okay, so tell me what's going on, you refuse to reveal what the issue is. We don't want to be honest with our problems. I think this is one of the reasons why there's so much money put into the entertainment industry, so much money put into our our mobile devices. We're addicted to them. We we can't survive with a moment of silence. We must have the TV on, our phones in our hand, our eyes glued to the screen. Why? Because it's such an easy way for us to be distracted from the reality of what is happening in our hearts. If we were forced to sit and be alone with our thoughts... If we did any amount of self-examination, we would come so quickly to the realization, the recognition that there is a war taking place in our hearts, a war of the sinful man against our desire to honor and glorify the Lord. Romans 7, Paul describes this war in his heart. He's torn and pulled this way and that He wrestles with himself. He wrestles with his thoughts, his heart. He says, I know what I'm to do, but I don't do it. I know what I'm not supposed to do, and yet that is the very thing I keep doing. He does not know what to do, and he reaches the conclusion, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? That is a man who is mourning over his sin. Not merely remorse for what he's done. He's not sad at the consequences of his actions. He has a deep conviction that he is a sinner. That he is rebellious against God. That is the kind of response that we see throughout Scripture when men and women realize who they are before God. In Isaiah 6, 
The prophet Isaiah comes into the temple and sees the glory of God and it shakes the building and he trembles. He says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. He's mourning over his sin. In Luke 5, Peter is out fishing because Jesus has told him to go fishing. And they cast the nets and they pull up a huge catch of fish. And in that moment, Peter realizes who he is standing by. And he says, depart from me, for I am a man of, I am a sinful man, O Lord. This is to be our response We are to be poor in spirit, yes, but we are also to mourn our sin. As Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, said in Jesus, lover of my soul, just and holy is thy name, I am all unrighteousness. Vile and full of sin I am, you are full of truth and grace. Vile and full of sin. That is me. That is you. Friends, if before the very presence of God, you do not feel the poverty of spirit, if you do not feel a mourning for your sin, friends, have you truly ever encountered him? We are to take a posture of mourning for our sin. That is how we live a blessed life. We admit that there are problems in our life that we cannot overcome, the greatest of which is our own sin. We confess it. We admit to it. We own up to it. We mourn over it. We grow convicted of it. We take off our mask. We reveal who we really are. We tell the great physician what is wrong. We sit with our thoughts. We cry out with the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And when we do that, Jesus says, you will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. How? How is it possible to take off the mask, to be real about who we are, to be honest about it, and be comforted? We have to adopt our final posture, and that is meekness. Meekness toward God In light of everything I've said to you this morning so far, it would be natural for you to respond in one of two ways. Either respond with anger and say, no, Jeremy, I don't believe what you're saying about me. That is not true. I'm a good person. Who are you to call me a sinner? You could rage out of here with your heart more bitter and hardened than it is right now more callous than when you came in. Or you could despair. You could shrink down and say, that's right, I'm I'm nobody. You could look in on yourself and make yourself feel worse. 
You could get small. You could heap injury onto insult, mocking yourself. You could get in your own head of despair and the echo chamber. You finding yourself at the bottom of a spiritual well. Or you could be meek, which is to say to have an accurate sense of yourself, a humble sense of yourself, a gentle sense of yourself that says what Jesus says here is true, What Jesus is calling me to do is true. It is true about my life. It is true about my heart. It is true about my past. It is true about my present. And in that meekness, in that state of reality, you can turn to God and say, this is who I am. This is how I come to you now looking for help. This is me coming to you looking for strength. I come to you looking for healing. In a moment, we're going to sing Rock of Ages, and we're going to sing this line. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. This is what it means to be meek, to come before God with an open hand that says, I am nothing. I have nothing. You are everything. You are holy. You are good. You are just. You are righteous. I am a sinner, vile and wretched, and I throw myself down before you so that in your grace and mercy, you will lift me up. This is what it means to come to the Lord in meekness, coming to him hungry and thirsty for righteousness. That's what verse 6 says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and he will satisfy you. He will fill you with it. He will give you what you need. Come to him longing for the answer to the question, how can I live this way? Who is going to save me? The answer is Jesus. He can do it for you. He can save you. He can fill you. He freely gives us what we need. Friends, it's one thing to come to this sermon, these three chapters, and say, look at this great mountain before me, this high task and calling that the Lord has for our life. We can come to this sermon and say, oh my gosh, this is what he calls me to do? We could come to this mountain and say, all right, I'll try. Or we could come to the mountain and say, this mountain is too high for me to scale. It is too tall for me to climb. And I must realize from the outset that this mountain that he has called us to climb, we cannot do it. You are utterly incapable of doing it. Any attempt to try to live this way is proof positive that you have not understood his message. Friends, Christianity is not a religion that says you can do it. Believe in yourself. Christianity says, be perfect, for I am perfect. Be holy, for I am holy. And recognize your utter inability to be perfect. Come to me, Jesus says, and I can do what you cannot do. Come to me and I can make you what you not, cannot make yourself. Come to me and I can give you what you cannot accomplish yourself. Come to me and I will declare you righteous. I will fill you with my righteousness. I will freely give it to you. Then and only then will you be blessed. 
then and only then will you experience happiness and joy that our neighbors are longing for. Let's pray.